Hey, Skill Seeker, you're listening to episode five of the Skill Seeker podcast. And today we are joined by Nerida Hansen from Nerida Hansen Print and Design. Now, this woman has absolutely blown me away. I cannot even begin to describe how much my love for this woman has grown since speaking to her and hearing about the way she is passionate about sustainable businesses and sustainable business practices and how that plays out in her willingness to nurture up-and-coming artists really invest back into her industry and how much of herself she's willing to to give out Um, it's just she's so amazing so amazing she shared so much with us about how she has had failed businesses in the past and taken sidesteps um, out of desperation I guess out of the need to feed her family and earn an income and how those sidesteps actually came to give her the skills she needed to to create this business that she has today now when we recorded this podcast with Nerida she was on only days away from making a really huge business decision. So we are going to check back with her in a couple of months just to see where she's at because she was approaching a real turning point in her business between uh, freeing herself up but making her business larger, uh, scaling it up to free out some of her time to do the things that she's really passionate about but also earn big money. to be paid back for all of the hard work that she's put in over the last five years. So we cover um, stuff like authenticity and following trends, how to turn your art into a project, distinguishing between being an artist and being a freelancer, also at being creative versus having a business, um, getting back into the business basics What did you do before social media and why aren't people doing that now? Is posting on social media just enough? Um, And also how creating a personal brand around your product can actually add value when it comes to collaboration. So she has just given us so much to talk about, so much to think about. Um, Can't thank her enough for coming on. So let's jump into it and see what she has to say. You're listening to the Skill Seeker podcast, and I'm your host, Emily. Let's get real and drop that Insta Perfect fail. We have one big question for all of our guests What do you know now that you wish you knew then? Join me each week for a dose of inspiration and education as we chat with amazing women in business, sharing their stories and lessons learned. jump straight in because I'm really excited to be talking to you. I first met you at the Finders Keepers Market in Melbourne last year. It feels like such a long time ago, but maybe that's September, (laughs) September last year about then. And I walked past your stall and I thought, oh my goodness, like this is phenomenal product. Like I need to figure out who's behind this. I need to to meet the maker of this. And the queue to talk to you was almost out the door. You were so fantastic. Yeah. How good was that? Introduce yourself. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Well, Nerida Hansen, 
I am a design agent, which means that I represent a range of designers and I license and sell their artwork to companies pretty much all over the world. Some of my clients internationally include IKEA, Debenhams, um, Hallmark, Camelback in Australia, companies like Elm, Lifestyle, Cotton On, Spotlight are one of my biggest clients as well. So I actually um, am a conduit between the designer and the retailer. The product that you're speaking of that I sell is the other side of my business, which is Nerida Hanson Fabrics. So that's a fabric line and it came about because as a design agent, I have so, so much contact with so, with so many incredible designers. Um, I also have a lot of contact with fa fabulous manufacturers throughout Asia and I just fell in love with all of the pattern designs that I was, um, that were coming across my desk every day and ended up starting my own side business, which was Nerida Hanson Fabrics, which has in turn, you know, really become a lot bigger than the agency itself, but the two work really well together. Pretty um, varied, but fabulous job that I have. Mm. I love it when I hear about people's side hustles, when they, it's like a love project that they just, that they do out yeah. of just passion, when it sort of overtakes and becomes the bigger part of the equation. Well, it does. And the reason I, one of the main motivations was because my clients tended to buy, you know, my, a lot of my clients are really super super commercial and they buy stuff that I think oh yeah that's really commercial but I've got all this other beautiful stuff that I absolutely love and so it was born a little bit because I just knew there was a market out there for really quirky cool designs on fabric and even though I was delivering lots and lots of beautiful things to spotlight in Australia I really saw that there was that niche aside and but um, still the design agency is still a very strong part of my business and going forward potentially you know will grow as well but um, Fantastic. hand in hand they work really well together perfect are these designs coming from the same designers so these these designers that are producing uh, prints for you they're coming with a selection of their artwork does it fit into a commercial one like one artist fit into a commercial one and then you've got other artists in the more um, bespoke sort of fabric printing side of things or is it one artist that produces all of this work and you're like, oh, that one fits over here, that one fits over there? Um, that one's no, it's a really, really fluid um, thing because uh, there are, as I've grown as an agent and as a business owner, I've had to sort of really find where my niche is, both as an agent and as a fabric business owner. Um, so some of the designers fit really well with my commercial clients and they don't fit so well with my brand. Some of them actually cross over. So Jocelyn Proust is a fantastic example of someone who does beautiful Australiana designs and you know, I started running with those last year and um, Spotlight came in and said, hey, we, we love her stuff and we've since licensed just about every Australiana design she's ever done, which is dozens and dozens and dozens to Spotlight. Wow. We're a really close commercial fit with them. And now um, in order not to encroach on their business, we've, we're selling her designs that are another element of what she does, which are more graphic and sort of funky, um, clean sort of uh, retro stuff that doesn't fit with that same style. So she sort of sits in both, both areas. I think for my fabric business, the branding is really, really um, about something unique and something quirky so that not only do I not challenge my, my clientele and, and I'm not competing with my other clientele, it's something that 
gives me the greatest sort of enjoyment and pleasure in developing these really quirky designs. And I think going forward, Nerida Hanson Fabrics will become more and more able to explore something really unique and different. Yeah, so the artists do vary depending on the style and whether they fit the commercial client or whether they fit my brand. Um, and the amount of artists I use can vary as well. So sometimes I'll really be passionate and love someone so much but the market doesn't have the same ideas so it's about giving people a go if they work really well i'll ask them to do another collab and we'll just keep moving on from there so what i sometimes think is going to be a huge seller isn't and vice versa sometimes i can try two or three prints from a you know an, an emerging artist and everyone loves their stuff so um it, it's a fluid area and one though i i am learning to try and identify those designers who not only will work for me but who I can work for them as well because I'd much rather put a lot more effort into fewer designers and make sure that they really um, evolve and make some great, great income than having myself spread too thin. And that goes both for the design agency and their Hanson Fabrics. Yeah, so really, really fluid area of the business. For anyone who's listening who's a, an aspiring creative artist and is working with an agency how do you from from your perspective how do you navigate the conversation with an artist or creative to say look I did believe that this was going to be a huge hit and it's not been as successful as I thought how does that conversation take place um well I think if um I've worked in the commercial area of um surface art long enough now to really understand that there is a fit for nearly everyone I mean some surface artists um, I think aren't strong enough to compete really viably in the marketplace. But most of them that I deal with have some real credibility. And as an agent, I have a very niche clientele. So my customers who come to me, say at Heimtextil in Germany or Surtex in New York, will actually come to me because they like the look and the feel of that work that the artists I represent do. It's very clean. It started off very Scandinavian, very minimalist. Um, and a lot of the time it's focused really on just fashion colours. Um, artists who don't work in that area, just because they don't work for me doesn't mean they can't work for another agency. And look, I look at agencies, say, abroad in, in the US in particular, and they have work that I, I would never be able to represent because it's not true to my look or feel. And yet those artists are extremely successful because there's products all, all over the world that that look and feel suit. So a lot of the time it's about me going back to that artist and just explaining that we don't have a match as far as um, what they their output is like and what my clients, you know, um, appreciate. So it's more often than not trying to get them, head them in the direction of perhaps another pathway or another even agency that might suit their look and feel better. On the other hand, I'm extremely honest and I've been known, I know that um, on various Facebook pages between designers, they talk about me and I've, it's been led on to me through a couple of my little spies out there that I've been known as brutal, to be very brutal to, to artists. And they say that because all artists take everything to heart as they should. It's a very emotional um, thing for an artist to be exposed to an agent who comes back and says, look, um, as I do, if, they, if their colour palettes are 10 years old, I will tell them that I feel like they really need work on 
uplifting their colour palettes and perhaps they need to be investing in looking at some more trending before they start building on their portfolio again. Um, I always point them in some sort of direction, but I'm, I'm completely honest with them if I feel like I can't sell your work because I don't use traditional Christmas colours. Like if I'm presenting Christmas designs, they have to be really fresh and really funky contemporary designs in, in fashion colour palettes. Whereas you go to a show in New York and you see 30, 40% of the other agents who have Christmas represented will do the old red and green and, and baubles and snowflakes. It's just not me. So I, I can be brutally honest, but I also think there is a place for everyone. It just, maybe I'm not the right representative for them. So it's, it's not, it's very disappointing for artists, but um, I always make sure that everyone walks away with some constructive feedback. Two key takeaways from that. Number one, no doesn't always mean no. It's just not, yeah. not with you, not now. Yeah. So if you can, yeah, brush yourself yeah. off and try and find the next yes, don't give up on your craft Absolutely. because because Absolutely. one person says no, it's just not a right fit for that for that particular yeah. thing. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, take note of the expert advice and opinion and information that's coming from where, from these exposures. If you are putting yourself yeah. out there and there is someone who is in the industry and is successful and does know what they're talking about, like unsolicited advice, definitely like from your next door neighbor, maybe take that with a, a grain of salt. But someone who's in the industry, if they're saying, hey, update your color palette, take yourself out of the situation and look yeah, at it objectively. Fine. Information yeah. is neutral. Maybe th that's just the, the key. That might be the key. Yeah. That might be the thing that's going to propel you to success in the future. You can take yeah. the emotion out of that feedback, definitely. And I also think um, a lot of that comes down to the authenticity of people's designs. And that's another huge bandwagon that we all talk about at the moment, but I'm very much on because what I see from surface artists and textile designers is um, most of them nowadays are self-taught through online courses and they come out of these courses with a look and a feel that's exactly the same as everybody else. Whereas if you look at some of my designers that I have in my fabric range at the moment, like um, Alison Willoughby from Melbourne, who's an emerging artist, um, Ella McKenna, who's a gorgeous artist from Melbourne as well, or Miranda Safroniou, who's actually English but living in Melbourne. These girls have got designs on my textiles at the moment. And what I am so loving about their designs is that they're born from their original artwork. They're not born from sitting and contriving a pattern for a fabric. They're actually painting or drawing or illustrating or sketching and then digitizing that for me so I can put it into a fabric repeat. So there's not enough of that in the surface art industry for my liking. And you know what, I think most people who come to me with fabric or patterns in their original art form that have perhaps just been manipulate, manipulated and digitized, I either take them <laughs> and accept them and represent them or I will honestly send them to somebody else if they um, just don't have the look and the feel in the work. So, yeah, authenticity is absolutely everything as well. And I'm not scared to tell anyone that I think their work is in inauthentic, not from the point of view that they're copying anyone, but they're just not doing what's real. At times I'll always ask designers who are looking for feedback for their they're fine art. So what's your example of your illustration or the art that you love? What are you most passionate about doing? I prefer to get artists to start playing with repeats and digitising their original artwork rather than contriving patterns because then they end up looking like everybody else. So I'm actually starting developing um, a number of workshops around these areas to develop um, pattern designers because 
there's just such a easier way to actually use your original art in pattern and surface art um, than actually trying to sit there and create portfolios for yourself. It's a huge, huge, I could go on forever about this. <laughs> so actually, it's really interesting yeah. though, because so often creatives talk about the um, creating for income and they do that yeah. side of it. And then they're creating for creation's sake because you're creative yeah. and you need to. And it's those, those passion, the love jobs that you do to keep your finger on the pulse and stuff that sometimes turn into the most successful yeah, and I, yeah, all of the examples of really successful textile designers that I know combine the two. So they're combining um, their skills and abilities with um, digital art, with their original art. Um, I don't know many successful artists who aren't, um, who haven't started with their passion. Now, this doesn't mean to say that you have to be a painter or a drawer, like a hand painter or hand drawer. A lot of the brilliant artists I know are actually graphic artists and they do all their work starting out with Illustrator or Procreate or some, some other app, but they, but they stick with that passion that they started with and um, that's what. And then, look, a lot of them, I advise people when they're, when they're developing their pathway as a surface artist too, is understand, distinguish yourself between the surface artist and the freelancer. So there's nothing wrong with going out and doing all sorts of work that's not to your passion or not to your heart because that's good income. Even the best surface artists I know and best um, independent artists out there often have a side job and as long as it's um, still a creative role, they're quite happy in that because at the end of the day, we all have to pay our bills and have consistent income. So, yeah. A huge fundamental human need met when we're generating Absolutely. some sort of income. Yes, exactly. It takes, takes the stress yeah. away. So you do have that, that space available to, to do the love projects, the passion. Yeah, that's right. So how did you get into this? How did you start up your own two, well, two successful businesses? <laughs> how, where did, how did this all happen? Um, well, like a lot of entrepreneurs, it's, it's a, after a long list of failed businesses. <laughs> but, I think, um, but I think my sort of my learnings for this business and my, my knowledge was from a role that I had at Target Australia about five or six years ago. I was somehow through a um, restructure put in charge of as a junior buyer of um, kids and teens bedding. Um, which was really something I'd never even contemplated before, but I was sort of thrown into this role. And through that, my job was to buy all the Disney and Warner Brothers bedding for Target Australia. So it was an area that I had really had no, had never been introduced to before. But dealing with Warner Brothers and dealing with Disney and Eric Carle and all these, you know, fantastic brands through that um, short sort of was nearly two years or probably 18 months in that role, um, I, I was introduced to the, um, the whole world of licensing. So, and probably at the deepest level. So, um, introduced to how licensing agreement works, how central marketing funds operate, um, what sort of percentage royalties artists get. And so I then was looking at, um, as a buyer, looking at the generic ranges for Target as well. And seeing what Target US were doing, um, which was introducing brands like Ojoy for Target, so independence designing for Target, not so much the big licensing brands like um, Spider-Man and, and Barbie, but those more independent art licenses. And it was a dream of mine in that role to do the same for Target Australia. 
unfortunately at the time, um, Target was really turning a few different corners and it wasn't part of their strategic vision. So I wasn't able to execute the, the ranges that I wanted to from, from a generic point of view. But it's really interesting. So when I left that role, I went to some of the manufacturers who I met through Target and said, hey, I've, I know some independent artists, their work's really cool. Here's an example of their work. And within sort of the first three months, I had licensed something like 42 patterns to Spotlight. So wow. I introduced a beautiful Swedish designer, Issa Form, who I'm, who's still working very closely with me and I'm really excited to have her funky people range coming out of my fabrics next month. Issa and I have been through this whole journey together. We've, we've done lots of licensing for baby wear for, um, you know, in Asia and we've done um, water bottles and stationery in, in the US. We've sold lots of fabric textiles in, in Europe together and continue to, to run some designs for Spotlight as well. So from that journey of that initial sort of success, I then decided that I needed to go to Surtex in New York if I was to make this work because licensing industry in Australia is fairly much, you know, negligible. There's not much happening here for independent artists. Fortunately, it's starting to be a lot more now, but back in four years ago, it was really nothing much going on there. And then through those years, I ended up having the, the privilege and the pleasure to represent um, I will represent Laura Blythman on behalf of for Spotlight as well. So um, she created some amazing collections for me to show them and we ended up, um, my dream back at yeah, Target days was to have a Laura Blythman bedding range um, and I was just really thrilled last year to have that delivered to Spotlight instead. So my dream did come to some fruition in the end um, and then I continued to support a whole range of other designers as independent designers for Spotlight, which is very new for that store. It's often been seen as very bland and very generic and um, very boring, but they're, they're really turning the corner with an amazing design manager in charge and they're really, really committing. Like I tell you, they're really committing financially and otherwise to supporting independent designers in that store. So, um, and really we don't have any other stores in Australia to leverage off. Um, there's a few independent bedding boutiques and things doing great collabs, but they're very, very small. So Spotlight's been given us, um, has been a, a great opportunity for us. And then from, from my first show in Surtex, I just rolled with it. It was just learning as I went, having to engage a really good lawyer to draw up great contracts. And that was about probably the heaviest part of the role that I've had to do. And yeah, just continued on developing and growing as I went. And I'm still learning a lot about the licensing industry. I'm still making my mark, still got a long way to go, but I feel like I know a little bit now <laughs> about the business. Yeah. I can't believe it's only been four years and you've achieved so much. Yeah, but I um, asked my family and they'd say, I've been away a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I was pretty intensely focused on those overseas trade fairs, you know, so it was like New York, Paris, Frankfurt, New York, Paris, Frankfurt for a couple of years. And I only had my very first break this last two months. I actually didn't go to the shows because they were moved. The dates for New York were moved to February instead of May and I decided to have a break from my January show in Germany as well. So in that sort of few years of shows, it was very intense and I would say it was six years of work in three. Sounds like it. Definitely sounds like it. So I want to know, this is the big question that we ask all of our guests, everyone that comes on, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? It's a fascinating question because 
there's so many layers to it. I think there could be a hundred different things that I could mention. And a lot of those things, I think, yeah, they'd benefit lots of people to know if they were starting out themselves. But the biggest thing for me would have to be that I've learnt how big a difference there is between entrepreneurship and great business. Um, and I think if all entrepreneurs, when they're starting out, actually could understand what that difference is, they would probably save themselves a lot of heartache. Um, I think what most entrepreneurs go through um, is that they have vision, they have passion, they have tenacity, they're very good at working hard. But what a lot of us don't start out with is great business skills. And you've seen, I've seen a lot more success come from people who are not entrepreneurs, going to university, studying a business degree, coming out with practical approaches, skills, um, financial backgrounds and actually being able to make something of a business that may not be as entrepreneurial or creative, but they plot along, they tick over slowly and they build and build and build on their, their base knowledge. Whereas a lot of entrepreneurs will actually start out with this vision and this passion and they actually don't understand how to run a sustainable, financially sustainable business. So um, I think if I had my time again, um, I, 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 would, I do regret, and I know a lot of people say they don't have regrets, there's no point regretting anything, but I regret not having that good business background before I started my first business. So my advice to anyone is if you are an entrepreneur, you must nurture it. You must grab hold of that and nurture it, but you need to be patient and get those business skills before you invest you know, $200,000 in a business before you even invest twenty dollars or $30,000 in a business. If you don't understand when that first lot of money is, you know, soaking up in cost of running business, in cost of goods, in freight, in shipping, in, um, you know, marketing, in Facebook spend, you know, where, where to from there? So if you don't understand where to from there, everyone knows how to spend that first $50,000, but how do you actually manage that going forward? And so I think um, understanding what great business is compared to entrepreneurship is really, really, really important. And I'm a little bit sorry too that in our education system, we don't have any way of nurturing entrepreneurship because... I would attest that most entrepreneurs know that they are an entrepreneur from a very, very young age. And like a lot of entrepreneurs, I have stories of making, you know, corn fritters at home and then going down and selling them in front of the local milk bar when I was like 14. That's the sort of person I was. And so I think um, nurturing that is so important and I really would hope to see that in years to come, um, schools and TAFE colleges actually introduce subjects that are relevant for entrepreneurship that can actually help them identify good business from entrepreneurship and, and feeding and nurturing that spirit that they have because you can't, you can't develop an entrepreneurial spirit. It's something that's just within you. So for me, I think um, that would definitely be the biggest learning. It's funny you talk about the little corn fritters. The person I interviewed last uh, was talking about them selling passion fruits as like an eight-year-old yeah. child in the driveway. Yeah. And, and they used to like, they used to do it with their brother. And then when he got tired, she used to keep the money. It's funny yeah. how many people yeah. had 
that in them from such an early age. So well, I even um, I had friends. Well, it came about because I had friends cooking the corn fritters with me, and it ended up paying them a dollar each, and I kept for the cost of goods. Like you know, I kept nine dollars or whatever for myself and gave them a dollar each because you know I was like, well, it, I I invested in the cost of the goods. <laughs> So, therefore, here's your salary and here's my, my take. So, it, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, like, my children wouldn't be caught dead sitting outside selling lemons. It's just not in them. But, yeah, it's in, it's in all of us who are entrepreneurial um, from a very young age. And, you know, as much as great business skills are, I think you absolutely have to have them, you also have to embrace that entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneurial spirit because where would the world be without incredible entrepreneurs? You know, it, well, it might be a better place in some ways, but it also if we, if we use that entrepreneurial spirit for the right reasons, you know, the world is definitely a better place. We're looking at you, Mark Zucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Uh, interesting so you're talking about corn fritters and you're talking about a couple of failed businesses so you know i'm going to ask you about the other failed businesses between yeah. what what else have you done well my first passion was um golf so i spent i was lucky enough to spend a couple of years after or was it between i think between finishing university actually um i met my who is now my husband in austria and subsequently traveled around southern europe following his little brother on the european tour events so we had a ball france you know the uk scandinavia and fell in love with golf i was an avid golfer in my early 20s um was it no probably my late 20s avid golfer and um worked really hard in another job that was very much a corporate position I put myself very early on in a reasonably decent financial situation and def- decided to leave because I always had a creative spirit. I didn't know what quite, you know, know what to do with it. And um, then went to business with a golf golf clothing company called Five Under. It was men's and women's fashionable golf wear. And again, it, it was a beautiful concept. I had great clients. Um, unfortunately, it ran into, there was a couple of different downfalls. One was going to China to produce in China without any experience was an immediate downfall because it was all well and good when the quality came back perfect. But when half of your men's pants come back with holes in them, it broke my entire season. It was a really destructive, terrible time for my business. But then on top of that, I started, I was pregnant. So actually working and managing all of that was extremely, extremely difficult. And, um, uh, that was an, another, you know, lesson learned as well. Like that, pregnancy doesn't always go the way you want it to. You can't always manage as, you know, global business at the time that you're that you're necessarily pregnant and have very young children. So um, that then led into I sort of morphed that into women's wear because the women's side went really well, and I did also open a retail store at the same time. But with a new baby, it was about managing. Um, staff or paying nannies it was a really big juggle so it morphed into women's wear and I started buying in women's wear for the retailer so I morphed that business you know about twice over the period of my young children and then when I became pregnant with my son second time around I really did give up it was so difficult and so terribly hard 
Um, and then for a matter of illness, I was off for a few months and lost the cycles of seasons that I was going in and out of. So I fortunately at the time got offered a position as a junior buyer for Target. So I thought, look, it won't do me any harm to have a stint um, in the corporate industry again learning what I can about the trades you know from a different light I did get to do buying in India and China and you know gain some more experience and then upon finishing that yeah that's when this agency started so really significant business investments before really some highs and some real lows and um, to the point where really I just had to walk away and lost absolutely everything I'd invested but with little children, it just the focus just was not on trying to rebuild those businesses. So, yeah. you know, I was quite lucky in a way to, well, in hindsight, now that I, if I look back, if I had been successful with that, I wouldn't have had to go out and get a corporate role and wouldn't have, you know, had the lessons I have. And I'm much, much happier in the business I have now. Yeah. yeah. It's a good, it's a really good point because I think the internet is flooded with people, business coaches and whatnot that are saying, Start up your business, follow your passions, quit your day job. Mm. Those day jobs are so valuable in the lessons that they can teach. You're getting oh, paid absolutely. to learn. When else absolutely. in your life are you getting paid to learn the skills that you need to make yeah. responsible, sustainable business choices for the future? Don't, yeah. don't squash those dreams and say it's never going to happen, but absolutely, realistically think, is this the best time and place? Like small children, yeah. not enough finances, not enough spare time. Is this yeah. the best decision for starting a business right now? Or can I get paid to learn the skills I need to start my business in the future? Absolutely. And I think that's what people need to sort of look at. Um, and that goes back to this entrepreneurship versus great business. I think if you are really passionate about a business, um, that it would be nothing better for a young person or even an older woman person, it doesn't really matter on your age, but to actually seek, actively seek out a company that could teach you those skills first. Give them three or four really good years, put in absolutely everything you have, um, get paid to learn about the business and if you still love it, you know that it's right and you can move on. Um, and there's nothing better than a successful side hustle. And I'm actually, um, I've got a, a lot of content around some teachings about side hustles as well, because if you can successfully start a side hustle, that is really about where your passion and where your heart lies. And you can learn enough as that on the side and then, you know, establish enough of a, a following and um maybe even some financial security behind that business to start it full time. That is a much better scenario than diving in the deep end. Um, I think if you are on the other hand, very fortunate to have a really financially supportive partner, then fantastic, go for it. But um, you know, as the bread, I was always the breadwinner in our relationship. So it's a very different situation for me. Yeah. Yeah, so so true. I was talking. I was actually talking to Beck, who is my business partner, last night, as we're looking at some new marketing strategies. I'm thinking, how does anybody do small business without a marketing mindset, without a business sustainability? Oh, yes. Like, how does anyone yes. figure this out? I've got, I've got no idea. I just hand it over to her. Yeah, that I'd, I'd hate to think how many of these little Instagram businesses you do see that look beautiful, but they actually do not last. And yeah. back to sustainability. Yeah, we were talking about that as well. Interesting you bring yeah. that up, how the, the, the business space has changed, how there's a lot Absolutely. of people claiming to have 
to have a small business and before the internet, before Instagram, before it was so easy to create a website, who mm. were these people? Like these people were still making, these people were mm. still creating, but we would have seen them at markets rather than yeah, right. online. Yeah. So yeah. when we're looking at the the courses and all of the infrastructure available for people mm. with small businesses, now there's definitely there's creators, small mm. business creators, and then there's people who are working on creating a business. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems I see in the surface art and textile design industry. So um, it's a hugely, the global opportunities in surface art are massive. Um, and I've, again, I've got a, a whole course that I'm launching around this for people to develop their skills in the surface art industry because there is so much opportunity. And as I see it, it's a growing global opportunity that any artist or designer can participate in. These problems I see um, is, and a lot of the complaints I hear online is that designers are fed up with not being seen and not being recognised. And they, they kind of feel like that um, by having a book in an agent booth every now and again and putting their stuff on Instagram that they should get clients. Whereas if you take Instagram and Pinterest out of the mix, um, what do you have? You have someone who's sitting there at their desk with no marketing and nobody seeing what they're doing. They're not making phone calls anymore. They're not sending letters. They're not sending, they're not, you know, being consistent in where they appear at trade fairs. They're not investing. So people, the thing about social media is that we, we have to invest very little to get ourselves out there. Whereas 10 years ago, you would have had to say, okay, how much money do I have for marketing? Well, how much will I need? I'll need to go to two trade fairs. I'll need to send out a newsletter drop every, every week by international mail, this, that and the other. You know, that sort of activity, if people still did that today, they would be much better off. Picking up the phone, calling a company that you want to collaborate with and asking for a meeting, you know, it just doesn't happen. And so one of the, one of the great things about Instagram is that buyers can see textile designers and surface artists and go, oh, I love their work. Okay, we'll get in touch with them. But it really ha happens like that. And I know as an agent, I might see a fantastic designer on Instagram for like three, four months and I might go, oh, I might actually email that person and see if they want to work with me. But I might see them for months and months and months before I actually make that decision or have the time to actually follow them up. And then a lot of the time then I'll forget about them too because there's so many other things going on. Um, so I think the marketing and the direct marketing has been lost through social media. And it's why a lot of companies just start failing and a lot of surface artists don't get the recognition they're looking for. Um, so it's about really going back to that old fashioned um, direct marketing approach um, and yet we have fantastic um, platforms to help us there too like you know LinkedIn is a fantastic way for people to identify potential buyers of their product um, yes you may not be able to contact them directly but you can find out who they are you can ring the company you can you know do some clever marketing around finding out what shows they're going to or which shows their companies go to um, so yeah, there's, there's tools out there that we can use. Um, I think social media is very underutilized as well. Mm. Just posting twice a day on Instagram is not where it's at, but unfortunately that's where everyone thinks it is at, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not. I was no. going to ask you as well, how do you, how do you find the talent that you work with? Are you, um, are you looking on Instagram for them? Um, I'm not actively looking. I get, I get, um, 
actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm looking every day, every, every time I look at Instagram or Pinterest I, or Facebook, I don't actually use Facebook that much, um, but my, my business uses Facebook a lot, but I don't personally go through Facebook. Um, I look to check to see what's happening, to talk to my audience, to, you know, respond to comments and things like that. So it's a really great way for me to connect with my audience. And at the same time, if I see something I love, I'd make sure I follow them. Um, some, you know, occasionally I'll go, oh my gosh, why haven't I never seen this person before? Like I actually emailed an artist in America this morning because I just saw her stuff for the first time and went, oh my gosh, I need that on my fabric. Um, but that doesn't happen all too often, but it does happen. Um, I get emails from artists every day, probably three or four a day um, from all over the world. And I generally, I always look at every, the minute I get an email from someone, I'll look at their Instagram account just to get a feel for what they do. I will nearly every time, here you go artists, if you're hearing this and you do email me and you don't hear from me, email me again because nearly every time I'll get straight back to them because I don't have time to sit on these emails and I will give them some constructive feedback as to why I'm not interested. Um, once in a blue moon, I'll say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for contacting me. I love your work. Let's talk and we'll Skype. Um, so there's a little bit of both, you know, I either do seek them out because I've seen them on Instagram. But generally speaking, I don't sit there and look for people because I usually have, you know, enough. But in saying that, if someone presents me with something incredible, I can't help myself. <laughs> Whether it's for me or another client, you know. Um, like at the moment, I'm looking for a couple of next best things. I don't know what those next best things are. I have no idea what they look like. I've no idea where this artist lives or, you know, what they do, but I'm looking for them. <laughs> yeah, you'll just know it when you see it. I do, I do, I do. So, yeah, it's interesting. Perfect. So what's the, what's the future for your business? Do you see both working, you've got two businesses, you've got your side hustle, side hustle going to overtake, is that going to be your main priority? Where are you headed? What's, what's on the cards, um, Benerita? This is ridiculously incredibly bad timing to ask me this question <laughs> because I have huge decisions to make literally today about um, the direction of my business. I have been presented with huge opportunities um, to kind of take both to another level and I'm just trying to figure out which ones I will take, mm -hmm. which ones are risky, if they are risky, if there's any way that I can mitigate risk. But fundamentally, it's about finding direction for both the agency and the fabric business that does a couple of things. One is really consolidate the artists that I'm working with and align myself very strategically with artists now so that I can give them the best opportunity and vice versa. So I've got some really, really exciting collaborations happening in the US that I'm just, look, they're, they're artists that don't just have an incredible visual um, aesthetic. They are incredible women with incredible 
values that could teach me, you know, how to live happily for the rest of my life on a personal level as well. So um, it's about establishing and maintaining those relationships with artists. And then on the other hand, I feel like one of the joys I have is giving emerging artists a go. So it's balancing that core group of artists who are actually providing me with the opportunities by allowing me to work with them and then working with some new artists to give them opportunities. Um, with it. I'm not going to think too far about how they might grow with me as a business, but maybe, you know, can I just give them some opportunity? Because the mentoring that I do and um, the workshops that I have planned are really um, such a joy. And um, so delivering continually, continuing to deliver and growing the delivery of that mentoring is really important. So for me too, it's like, how do I grow my fabric business with other opportunities that I have to discuss over the next few days? And how do I continue to grow, develop my design agency, but give myself more time for living and for mentoring? So um, for me, it's about, I'm now looking at changing um, traditional ways of working with other ways of working and um, fortunately I've been presented with those other ways and it, but it's a big leap it's sort of like right now I've invested in a warehouse I've got star uh, well I'm trim, trimming back that because I'm going to, I'm streamlining my what my factory does for me rather than do it myself but it's about changing what I thought was going to be the path into something else and so there's lots and lots of decisions but fundamentally it's about um, being having those stronger working relationships with artists, delivering um, better products for my clients and better fabric products. But how do I do that um, at the same time as being able to mentor and develop emerging artists? So I'm in this huge learning curve. And then just to throw a curveball at all of that, I went to the Makers and Shakers um, conference on Friday and Tiff Manuel was there and something she said resonated so much with me, which was about um, work-life balance really and her journey in being, you know, one of the, you know, this hugely successful international company with now being her own artist with just one or two staff and really just enjoying every moment of every day that she works and she's had the highs and she's had the lows and now she's looking for the in-between. Um, I feel like I could, I'm on the cusp of having those huge highs, but now I'm thinking, you know what, just be really careful and start to work with within the means that I have, just work better, work stronger, deliver better products and um, try and enjoy life a bit more and go surfing or as well. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Time for you. Big, big times. Yeah. And wow. so I don't have any answers to what's happening yet, but, That's you know, it. stay tuned. There's a lot of this involves um, probably undoubtedly some pretty global, you know, expansion for the fabric business, um, which might happen fairly quickly um, if everything presents itself in the right way. Sounds um, very exciting. Yeah. And, and some changes to my fabric business locally in, you know, I've got friends who work for huge companies in Australia and postage kills us. Postage and freight are constant financial blush on my company as very young as it is. And no matter what we do to streamline um, our business, my business in there in the studio warehouse, we cannot overcome the challenges of freight and postage, both getting 
stock from South Korea to my warehouse, on reducing freight rates for our customers. Um, you know, no one wants to pay freight. And unfortunately, I've, I've just put my freight up by $2 a package and it's still killing us. So it, there's some really difficult challenges there that, I, that I'd like to remove. So I'm looking for ways and means to do that. And then the other thing about having a fabric business or any product business is the footprint of transport on this planet for businesses that are importing is just, you know, it's ridiculous. And I, I have tried to reduce that by just ordering very small quantities. And, and a lot of my fabric customers would say they get like really annoyed if they don't buy quick, they miss out. But the whole point of that is that why well, have a warehouse full of fabric that I don't know if anyone's going to buy because the printing of the fabrics are, yes, they've very much reduced their um, ecological stamp in the way that we print um, in my factory. Um, there's no runoff, there's no toxins, um, but also printing on demand is much, much better way to operate. Um, if we are going to provide people with product, provide the quantity and the, the amount that people actually want, and if it sells out, well, you're just going to have to get in quicker next time. Um, obviously, the bigger I grow and the, the more, you know, the more I grow, the demand gets high, you want to scale. But um, it's just scary how much crap is going on ships from China and South Korea and India to Australia. And it's just sitting in fulfilment centres or sitting in warehouses. And it's just, you know, it just scares me. And, and the think, quality, and once it comes out of those fulfilment centres, the quality of the stuff that people are consuming, I'm like, you have that oh, for four look, days and then it's going straight into landfill. Yeah, it's, look, it's, it's, it's a huge responsibility that any of us importing have to bear. And there's a few reasons why I do import rather than make fabric here. Um, cost, of course, being one of them, but quality is another one. The quality of my fabrics are really incredibly beautiful. Um, and even if you do print fabrics here, they're coming from the same source as my own. So, in fact, some of the fabrics that are printed in Australia will go from India to the UK and be sold from the UK to Australia. So um, it's, it's kind of a unique sort of cycle of product. Um, just because it's printed here doesn't mean it's made here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still travelling the length of the seas to get here to be printed. Um, and really then Really, you know, a lot of people at the at Finders Keepers Market actually will say to me, "Oh, do, so you make these in Australia?" And I say, "Well, you know what? As much as there is a really big place for printers in Australia, and I always, always sending people to our local Melbourne um, printer who I who I think are doing a great job, but I would have to sell my fabrics for seventy five dollars a meter. Now that then I wouldn't have a business, and I wouldn't be able to support these designers." and support my staff and, you know, support my family. There just would not be a business. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of both, but the reality is for my business, I do have to import. Mm -hmm. um, but how we do that, you know. So, look, lots and lots and lots of stuff going on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Makes yeah. me makes my heart so happy that I have connected with someone who's so sustainably aware not just the sustainable tolls on the environment but sustainability of their own being their own presence their own business practices and all of these things that makes me so happy yeah but, that about, but about I me think the, key but, word, the key word there is aware like I'm not yeah. there I'm not there yet I mean mm. one of my girls Pip in a warehouse suggested that we get combustible package uh, com compostable packaging this year which we did so we got rid of our plastic inserts, we got rid of, 
the Australia Post mailbags, which don't um, obviously can't compost. And we bought in the compostable bags. We had incredibly fantastic feedback when we bought that out. It feels great to be able to tell a customer just to rip off the sticker and put it in their compost. But that's only one part of this huge chain. You know, it's, it's just we are only just on the cusp of being aware like that. Um, and the other thing that brings me great joy, though, is that my customers, albeit using, you know, imported fabrics, are hand-making product and hand-selling it at, you know, the markets. There is, you cannot get a better product than that. Um, and I just adore the fact that these people are, you know, have such a light footprint on the planet so it's my customers are actually creating this whole cycle of you know from designer to the manufacturer to the maker to the person with no big corporates in between which is just you know i love it i love i love that i love it yeah it's a very very complicated ecosystem and landscape isn't it when you look at it is but and you know that's why i'm so grateful to the likes of emma from makers and shakers and all the guys from Finders Keepers and Big Design Market and even all the little markets that are in every neighbourhood now is that they are create, helping us create this eco, this economy that's just so friendly. Um, thanks to Etsy, you know, Etsy yeah. have obviously not been able to stick with their handmade ethos. Um, the world was just too much of a bigger place for that, but they are still solely responsible, I think, for the movement in across the globe of people being able to hand make exactly. and sell product. And I love that they still have that, that tick available very predominantly that you can yes. select handmade. Like it's not Absolutely. hidden in four filters down and yeah. complicated to it's Absolutely. there. If you want yeah. handmade, you, you click it really yeah. easy. It's been and, then the, and then the sewers, you know, like the sewers just amaze me every day. Every market I go to now, and even my warehouse has been open on Saturday mornings, you know, and the women walk in with these gorgeous funky pants and jackets and dresses that they bought the fabric from me like weeks before or maybe sometimes months before when it comes to finders keepers and they walk into my booth and just go, ta-da, and I just go, oh, my God, that looks amazing. Like just the, the women sewing at home uh, and one guy that I know of in Melbourne, he's awesome. Um, fortunately, the guys need to start sewing because their homemade shirts look amazing. Um, but, yeah, it's just so touching and that people dress so gorgeously in, you know, their handmade product that is actually, you know, give Gorman a run for the money any day. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's really good. I love it. We can edit this bit out. Can I have your <laughs> thoughts on Gorman? Um, my thoughts on Gorman. Um, I think Gorman, it's really interesting to say this because I had this conversation on Friday and I don't think you need to edit this out actually. Mm-hmm. I think Gorman is, Lisa Gorman has done an incredibly outstanding job in developing her brand I think the way that she collaborates with designers and her ethos behind her own designs is just what this country needed um, and and continues to need. I think the downsides of Gorman, um, it just really cannot be be avoided. And I think I, I remember listening to a podcast from Design Files with Lisa and it really resonated with me that she came to a turning point where she had some stores and she could no longer concentrate on what she loved doing and she introduced a 
partner into her business who was very strong in retail. And of course, when you have someone in your business who's strong in a particular area, you're going to grow in that area. I think um, the downsides of Gorman, well, there's only one and that's, that is like when I went to the conference on Friday, there's three people wearing the exact same dress. But look, that's the only downside of it. And I think, um, you know, making overseas, no longer made in Australia, lots of stores, sort of being a broader, wider brand now than something so boutique could not be helped when you have such a wonderful product. And I love that so many women um, in Australia support it wholeheartedly. It, we all really appreciate the collaborations that she does. Um, and, yeah, I think she stands for something really worthy and worthwhile. Um, and, you know, I love I love buying bits and pieces from Gorman. It's, it's probably... Anyway, I think I think it's great. I, I think there's yes, there can be arguments to and to and um, against for and against you know how it's developed over the years, but I really don't think that you can help that. I mean, you know, I, I'm sort of in that situation myself. Where how big do you go? Um, do you go big enough that you start actually making real money and being able to survive your life, or do you stay and struggle? Um, and so it's finding that balance. Now, if you're offered an opportunity to grow and develop and enjoy some financial freedom as well as loving the job that you do, well, you know, so be it. I, I just think, and that I don't know even if that's the situation that she's in, but I imagine she's got more room to move with being loving her creative position. And um, without her loving her creative position, they wouldn't be employing so many people in this country and you know doing so many great things for design i think she's one of definitely one of the movers and shakers in the contemporary design space there always has to be some in fashion and i think she's definitely it mm -hmm. in this country. and i get so flattered when people come up to my booth at finders keepers and say oh you're the gorman of fabric <laughs> i just say oh i love that thank you for <laughs> me like it's it's a real yeah. really flattering when people compare me to lisa gorman you know like that even though it's not my designs, but, you know, yeah, I love that. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for that insight. No worries. <laughs> so how can we find you? How can we connect with you? Where are you? Where do you hang out? Um, well, I do have a not studio. In, not in real life. Like not in obviously life, yeah. You have to give us your real life location to hang well, out. Well, no, what I was going to say is I do have a studio, but um, as things develop and um, I, th I think, you know, I was talking before about turning points in, in my growth and some big decisions that I have to make. I think my life's going to go more and more and more in the, into the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, and so Hanson Print and Text, which is my Instagram handle, is really where it all happens for me. Um, I really have been working on training myself in how to use the cloud more effectively. And I think that I'll really be sort of driving through Pinterest a lot more than I have been as well. So Nero to Hanson Print and Textiles. Um, Facebook is Nero to Hanson Print and Textiles as well. So I can be pretty much found on the main social media platforms. Um, my websites are a huge like web of different things, but nerodahanson.com, which is my fabric store, has a link into my design agency, which has a link into my creative market store with my design mock-ups, which will have a link into various other things like my 
teachable sessions that are coming online in the next couple of months. And, you know, so I do have this big matrix of websites as well. But if you go to nearetohanson.com, it will lead you to all of those eventually. <laughs> yeah. How bad do you want it? You have to find it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. That's been massive insight into a successful entrepreneur's mindset. So thank you so much for being so honest with all, with all of no your conversations. And I'd love to get you back on in a couple of months once you've sort of gone through this transition and made your decision yeah. and talk about where, where you've ended up. I can't wait. I can't wait for that time. I'm excited. Yeah, I can't wait myself. I'm really curious <laughs> as to know what's going to happen and where I'm going to be. <laughs> well, see you in the future. Yeah, that's right. No, that'd be awesome. Thanks so much. OMG. OMG. Isn't she amazing? All right. So, Skill Seekers, head over to the Skill Seeker Community Facebook page. Let us know what you thought. I want to know what you're thinking about sustainability in business, scalability, all things creative. Let us know what you got out of this. Um, also, the, the question that we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? Oh, Nerida. Oh, Nerida. The, the concept of having actual business skills for an entrepreneur, I really feel like she's touched on something big there. So, head on over to the community. Tell us what you thought. Also, it would really help us if you were to jump on over to iTunes, subscribe, give us a review because it really does help us book these guests for you each week so we can get the very best, the very best insights into the very best stylish brands that Australia has to offer. If you want to know what's going on on the inside of someone's business, if you have a lady crush, someone that you are following and you're thinking, what is that person really like? What is really going on behind closed doors for that person's business? Let us know. Send us a PM or a DM. Contact us. Reach out to us. Email us. Do what you need to do to get in contact. Let us know who you want to speak to. Okay, Skill Seekers. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to come back next week. Thanks for listening, Skill Seeker. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. So you don't miss a thing and we continue to book these amazing guests for you, head on over to iTunes and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review. Catch you next week as we chat to another amazing guest and learn about what they know now that they wish they knew then. 